Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I'm so glad to have you here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about something that I'm doing later this month, you know, in January. So I'm hosting a meetup for the podcast, the Forward Thinking Founders Meetup. I'm inviting every guest I've ever had on. I'm inviting any angel investor who's an angel investor in the podcast. And it's going to be a lot of fun. We're having it at a great location in San Francisco in late January, and I would love for you to come. Right now, there's two ways for you to come, really. Um, you can buy a ticket on Eventbrite for 50 bucks, um, or you can do what I want you to do in the first place and become an angel investor in the podcast. If you become an angel investor in the podcast, you get to come to this meetup uh, you know, complimentary to what you pay, which is $10 a month or $100 a year, on top of all the other benefits you get for being a, uh, an angel investor. Uh, if you go on my Twitter, which is Matt underscore Sherman, you'll see that I am playing some like interesting games. If you want to come for free, you have to find someone with a promo code. So if you're interested in doing something like that, head over to Twitter at Matt with one T underscore Sherman. But if you just want to go, you don't want to play games, you just want to meet amazing guests that I've had on the podcast, just become an angel investor. You can do this at glow.fm slash F20R. What you get is obviously access into the meetup, you get premium content, you get an online community, and you get my highest graces and my thank yous because I really appreciate the supporters. So, you know, that's all I have right now. We're going to get into the podcast, but if you want to come to the meetup, then become an angel investor or pay 50 bucks. Up to you. With that, let's get into today's episode. Run it! All right, how is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to David Izikowitz, who is the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Infinity. David, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks for having me, Matt. It's, It's great to be on. Yeah, it's great to have you on, especially because... You are a startup that's pretty much trying to save the world. <laughs> like it's it's you're you you're very 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 interesting stuff that you're working on. And I just want to dive right into it. So for the people that don't know, uh, what is Carbon Infinity? What are you working on? So we're we're a company currently based in Shanghai, and we started about six months ago working on a, a technology called Direct Air Capture. And that involves the, the direct removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere with the intention to, to decrease atmospheric CO2 emissions. And our, our business model revolves around decarbonizing uh, industries. So the, the first industry we're, we're looking to, to address is aviation. So we're going to be producing a, a carbon neutral synthetic jet fuel which currently in the laboratory we're, we're developing our technology and will likely have scaled up to commercially viable basis likely in the next two to three years. So the first question that pops into my head is, do you mind describing your skill set, your co-founder's skill set, and your team's skill sets? Like what is necessary to to produce and, and create this technology? It sounds very technical. 
Yeah, it's pretty multifaceted. So I've got, I'm doing a master's in environmental engineering. But my, my background before this was in finance. So I've got a pretty diverse background personally. And my business partner, her background is in, is principally in engineering. So she has a, a PhD in mechanical engineering from Imperial College London. She's a professor in China and one of the, the leading experts in carbon capture technology. And the, the main background of our, of our research team right now is principally mechanical and chemical engineering. Uh, since our focus is largely on developing our filter technology, so the, the sorbent. So, note, as you probably can already imagine, I am not very technical. Uh, I, but I love hearing about, you know, solutions that solve big problems. So I have some questions that you might need to like answer in a way that where someone who doesn't, you know, who isn't technical will understand like myself. I'm, I'm pretty good at that by now. So I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't class myself as technical either. Cool. Cool. So let's start with the, your first, I guess, kind of beachhead, which you said, I might screw this up, but you said it's, it's. It's planes, it's jets, it's, it's helping, you know, air, airplanes produce less CO2. Is that, is that correct? So net, net, it will be carbon neutral provided our technology runs solely on renewable energy. However, uh, the, the planes themselves will run as they do today. So they'll, they'll produce the same amount of CO2 emissions per passenger mile. However, the fact that our fuel is derived from CO2 in the air, it works such that we are closing the carbon cycle. So we extract CO2 from the air, which those planes have produced, and we convert that again into fuel. So we're essentially recycling carbon. Got it. So this is going to sound, this could sound so stupid. I'm sorry if it does, but I, I have in my apartment, this, uh, this like fountain, it's like a toy fountain that water comes, you know, from the top and then it goes down one step and then one step down the other step. Then once yeah. the water hits the bottoms, it shoots back up to the top and it just reuses yeah. the same water. Is that, yeah. is that pretty much what you're doing? Obviously a more technical way, but is that in essence what you're doing with, with planes? That's essentially what we're doing with carbon dioxide. Yeah. So that's awesome. I, so cool. So the, is that, um, again, I'll excuse me for potentially naive questions, but is that ultimately the, the technique that you plan on applying to different industries like outside of, of jets or airplanes? Yes, yeah, so, so aviation is currently 2% of global CO2 emissions, shipping is 3% of global CO2 emissions, and so, so those highly mobile transportation industries, which are very difficult to decarbonize, like you're not going to get on a hydrogen-powered airplane anytime soon, and you can't electrify a long-haul passenger jet. So the only viable alternative is our technology or biofuels, and in my, my honest opinion, biofuels aren't overly scalable. And this is why I, I settled on working on this technology. 
And so aviation and shipping are the two principal transportation-based industries. And then there are other industrial-focused industries like concrete production, which accounts for around 7% of global CO2 emissions. So we're principally targeting those industries which are difficult to decarbonize and account for a large percentage of, of global emissions. So one industry that I am pretty sure has a, has a pretty steep impact on CO2 emissions is the you know the farming industry and how potentially like cows there you know when they release emissions from their bodies like it goes up into the air and it's bad um and this is where like a lot of people go vegetarian obviously i don't sound super educated right now because it's a little outside of my territory but like i'm rolling with it um is that is that a a big contribution to the problem and I'm kind of wondering if you have any thoughts on that or is that an industry that like is it's very hard to apply your solution for so as far as our technology our technology is focused on co2 uh, cows typically produce methane uh, which has a higher potency with regards to uh, climate change and the, the global warming potential however um, when it comes to livestock farming, I've, I've actually been a lifelong vegetarian. So my parents brought my family up vegetarian. So I don't really have the same connection to eating meat as most people, but with the likes of Beyond Meat and, and those sort of lab-grown meat products, I, I see a future where livestock agriculture won't be as necessary as it is today for people to maintain their current lifestyles. However, when, when it comes to sort of animal rearing and the technology, there's a lot of research studies on the impact that basically what cows eat determines how many meat, how much methane they produce. And so a lot of the, the soy and the grain that they're currently eating accounts for a large proportion of the methane that they are producing. So there's been some studies and there's a lot of innovation going into engineering specific foods for them to eat, which reduce this, their methane emission. But yeah, so long to answer your question, we're not exactly focusing on, on agriculture, but it, it's a huge proportion of of emissions today, but principally methane rather than CO2. Got it. I want to go back a little bit to at what point did you decide you wanted to start this company? And did you ever get the feeling that the problem or the solution needed was going to be too big or too hard to, to create? And how did you kind of, how did you step by step figure out how you were going to tackle the problem? Yeah, so like I touched on, Earlier, I guess 2018 was quite a pivotal year for me. Uh, I left my previous company at the start of the year, and then I I, I went soul searching. So I went traveling for for about six months, uh, and then I got back to London later in the year. Decided I wanted to focus on climate change for for my for my 50 plus year future career. But realized that I couldn't really do that with a with a finance undergraduate. So I have had previous experience in China. I knew this is a good place to start 
a company in the sort of environmental science field. And so I started looking for, for master's programs in China. And so I got an offer in January of 2019, so about a year ago. And then for, for the nine months or so before starting that program, I was researching and deciding what field I wanted to start a company in. And so through that research, I, I came across direct air capture. I connected with this professor and we, we discussed developing this technology through her research lab. Uh, and that's kind of how it came to start. As, as my, I see direct air capture as, um, it's kind of like a stopgap for industries which are very difficult to decarbonize. So I, I don't see it as uh, a solution to climate change. It's a solution to aviation, it's a solution to shipping, it's a solution to concrete production. It's not a climate change solution. We need to do a, a whole host of, of things, but as far as decarbonizing industries which are very difficult to reduce CO2 emissions, Direct air capture is for me the best technology, which is predominantly why I decided to start a company working on commercializing this, this tech. And what does, how do I phrase this? What does kind of success look like to you? When I say that, I mean, are there a, a certain amount of industries that you want to apply your technology to? And once they're applied, like you're you're good. Or I guess what's your what's your vision and what's driving you and and what uh, and what what's the the kind of looking forward? Where are you headed with this? So decarbonizing aviation is is a pretty big goal as it is. As in, if if every airplane is flying today with jet fuel that we've created predominantly with a carbon neutral means of production, I'd be pretty happy. And so aviation for one, shipping is another that I think our technology is very applicable for. And in the longer term, well, I say in the longer term, maybe five years out, we will do more research into, into concrete and aggregate. And so, yeah, my, my main goal is to decarbonize industries. And if we can take 10% of global CO2 emissions out of the atmosphere, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy. And uh, that's a pretty large, that's pretty big scale as it is. Yeah. Considering the, the scale of a facility of ours would be on the order of magnitude of a million tons. And we're talking global CO2 emissions, which are 40 gigatons, so 40 billion tons. And so if we have a thousand facilities, that's one gigaton. So. Yeah. So it's like the, the task at hand is already, it, it, that's a mission within itself, which, which makes sense to me. Uh, Something. Yeah. I, I I don't know if this is something that you know too much about. You might be an expert on. I don't know. But there's been a lot of 
conversation, kind of shifting the conversation a bit to different types of solutions um, to chip away at the CO2 problem and the, and the climate change problem. Um, I kind of want to go to uh, to what some companies in the States are working on, specifically Tesla. Um, I, you know, I, uh, I know that they are in energy, obviously, they, they run on the sun, it's solar, um, and it's, it's, it, they don't use any gasoline. Um, but uh, no, not, it's electric, not solar. However it works, obviously I'm not sure, but they don't use any gas. Um, but I've also heard that in ways it's still not good for the environment. Um, I'm kind of curious, what's your perspective on Tesla and uh, their contribution to solving, to kind of help, helping chip away climate change, if you have any thoughts? It's probably the, the best company which has come out of this debate in the last 20 years. Like so, so automobiles are pretty easy to, to decarbonize. So you have an internal combustion engine. The range of batteries today are such that it's feasible to, to use an electric vehicle. When it comes to the emissions associated with that EV, it basically comes down to where is that electricity coming from. If it's coming from renewables, then it's 100% emission-free. If it's coming from a coal-fired power station, on a net-net basis, that EV is probably more polluting than an than a internal combustion engine, depending on the efficiency of, of that ICE. And so that comes down to the, principally that comes down to where is electricity generated, or rather how is electricity generated. So in France or Norway, so France, the, predominantly, the predominant energy Electric, means of electricity production is nuclear. And Norway, it's predominantly geothermal and hydro. So these are very clean sources of electricity. And so running an electric vehicle or a Tesla in these countries will be greener than any internal combustion engine. This is compared to China. And so in China, depending on the region, 70 to 80% of Electricity today is generated from coal. All right, it's, it's, it's dropped to 50%. But that's still a large amount. And so if you're running an EV in China, it is probably less green than running an internal combustion engine vehicle. But looking long term, we, we need to electrify anything that we can. And so EVs are not only necessary, but they need to take over the road. And so what, what Tesla has done in moving the needle of the industry towards EVs is, is probably the, the best thing that's happened to the automobile sector in my lifetime. That's incredible to hear. I've always been a fan of Tesla and Elon. And I have to ask similar I mean, similar category of question, but pivoting a little bit. Did you, uh, <laughs> did you get a look at their new uh, Cybertruck, um, which is the, the latest car that they've built? And I'm just kind of curious on a, on a high level, uh, what do you think of the Cybertruck if you did get a look at it? It, it looks cool. Like, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a truck person. Like, I'm, I was born and raised in London. We, we aren't so familiar with, with trucks on the streets of, 
of European cities. But as far as the US market's concerned, if they're going to compete with, with Ford and the, I don't know what the main model that people, Ford Rambler or, I don't know what it's called. Oh, F-150, that one. They needed to do something different. And so when I first saw it, I, I thought it was pretty cool. But uh, I won't be going out and buying one anytime soon, I don't think. I, I think I'm more inclined towards the, the Model S or a Roadster. Yeah, I, I'm not a truck person at all. And when I saw it, I actually put down 100 bucks and, and reserved and put, got my spot in line. I don't know why, but I just feel like I saw, I was looking at the future and it looked, it's because it's a car of the future. It looks weird for today, but I think in 10 years, all car, like that's not, not all cars will look like that, but it's not going to look so crazy. And I just feel like I just can see the future in that car. It just blew my mind. I have to put money down. Well, it's like a concept car that is stated to actually be made. Right. So we'll see in 2022 or whenever they actually intend on making it. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure I'm like, I don't know, 100,000th in line. So I'll probably be waiting until like 2025 or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, they, they've, they've just started rolling cars out of their new factory not far from our research center in Shanghai. So uh, I'll be seeing more cars, on the, more Teslas on the street around me, but uh, I think it'll be a while till they start making the, the cyber truck in China. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually, I'm actually uh, intrigued. Did you, so did you just mention, so you live in Shanghai? Yes. So what's it like in, in Shanghai? I, I, meaning like the tech scene, the growth, building a company there. I honestly know nothing about Shanghai and what it's like building a company there, but just love any high level thoughts on, on what it's like living there and working there. I mean, it's obviously pretty different to, to London or, or San Francisco. And so there's a lot of cultural nuances to understand. Obviously, it's a big positive if you can speak Chinese. Uh, it's a lot easier in Shanghai. So there's different cities have different sort of attributes. So you've probably heard of Shenzhen. Shenzhen is where you, Shenzhen is where anyone goes if they're making any sort of device. And so the, the main selling point of Shenzhen is that global supply chains are there. So if you want to demo a product in San Francisco, it might take you three months. To, to make a prototype. Whereas if you're in Shenzhen, it might take you a week. And so things move a lot faster. The culture here, which has got a, quite a bit of pushback recently, is there's a term 996. So the, the standard startup working uh, schedule is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And so you imagine the sort of part, the culture that drives is very much about in a, like pushing products, shipping things, moving fast and scaling. And so that was partially the reason I wanted to come back here. And it, it's also pretty much, there's, there's an insane amount of smart people here. So they, they turn out very talented STEM focused graduates at the university here. Uh, it's still, comparatively 
cheaper talent than in the UK or the US. And there's also quite a, and, and the fact that I'm no supporter of what's happening, but uh, when the Chinese, when the Chinese government decides to pursue a certain policy, they really do go all in. And so when they focus on climate change, they deploy a lot of capital and they direct most local governments in that direction. And so with the way the world is going, there's increased focus and thus increased capital being invested in addressing these problems. And so we're pretty early in China, but those are predominantly the reasons that I wanted to come back to China to do this. That makes sense. Um, I want to dive a little deeper into the 996 culture. Um, so yeah, you're right. Like here, someone, you know, a VC can say, hey, like 996, and pretty much everyone's like, you know, that's net, like, we're not going to do that work-life balance, etc. Is there, yeah. is there any of that over there? Or is it just, that's the culture? Like that's, it's like the nine to five instead it's the 996. Is there, is there any backlash or I don't know, what's it like over there? So before, I say before 2019, it was pretty ingrained in the startup culture. And I can't remember which of the big tech companies here that started. It might have been Alibaba, it might have been Baidu. But there was one big tech company where some employees wrote some content on Weibo, so the equivalent of Twitter in China. And some of that content went viral and there started being more of a conversation within not just China's tech scene, but China's sort of just working environment about sort of work-life balance and, and employee burnout. And so, I don't see it changing immediately, but I think both founders and executives are, are waking up to maybe working 60 hours a week isn't all that productive. Yeah. Um, I have a, another question. It's kind of a meta question, but I literally don't know. So apology, apologize if um, it's weird, but are you, like, I'm kind of wondering what it's like to start a company in China and run a company in China with the, like, with the type of government that it has. This is a totally real question, and I'll probably cut it out after, but am, are you able to talk at all about the government, or is that not something that you're, that you're able to do? I'm sorry if that's a naive question. I mean, so, so we work quite closely with the government. And so, so you have to separate out uh, the government in Beijing to local government. And so, so imagine working with DC and then working with the, the California state government. Got it. They have, they have their own machine. Yeah, it, it's pretty comparable to, to DC and, and California. So California just passed their privacy bill. The federal government aren't really focused on that. And so it's 
pretty, it's not similar, but it's not so different in China such that the Shanghai government is the most forward looking in China. And so in, in the middle of last year, they passed this very extreme recycling law that you have to sort your rubbish into four very specific uh, categories. And basically most most citizens here got very sort of scared and, and they didn't really know how, how it worked. And so there was sort of city-wide campaigns on this recycling sort of policy. And that's kind of what I was referring to about when when governments do things here, they, they really do them. And so we we are working with the government. We we have to work with the government. A lot of capital comes through the government. Sort of when we're deciding where to to register our local entity, we're we're essentially asking it's not also not so dissimilar to what Amazon did with their HQ2 thing. We're sort of asking local governments what sort of package you can offer to us. And so there's a lot of competition between local governments here around growth and investment. And so if they're able to attract more companies there, they're able to offer more employment, especially high-tech businesses that are able to offer highly skilled jobs. And so it's seen as a, as a very positive thing by local government. So, so I mean, we, we have to work with them. It's a positive to work with them as well because we're, we're doing what we see as, as quite positive work. And so if we're able to influence them in any way, then it's, then it's not a bad thing. Yeah, that's a, that, that's cool. I like that perspective. And one more question on this dynamic and then we'll, then we'll shift a little bit, but how do you see the United States, um, in, uh, you know, how we're growing our big tech companies with, and then we got, you know, all the China's big tech companies. I'm kind of curious, like, do you have any predictions in the next, like, 10, 20, 30 years on what's going to happen, like, with big tech companies, you know, is, or I think there might be, like, a merger of Chinese companies, U.S. companies, are Chinese companies going to get bigger, vice versa? Like, do you have any theories on on the two kind of tech centers of the world? So, I think the... I think the decoupling is a legitimate concern and it could happen. Like living here today, I first came to China five years ago and, and things are very different today. The, the sort of surveillance technologies that they are able to freely deploy is concerning to say the least. Like there, there are, imagine a, a uh, crosswalk, what would you call it in the US? When you want to cross the road, uh, there's yeah, side crosswalk. Crosswalk. Uh, there are facial recognition cameras on either side there to catch jaywalkers. And so, if someone jaywalks, they will scan that person's face. And more often than not, it's tied to their WeChat mobile wallet, which 
the government has pretty much free access to that data. And I've heard stories that people have jaywalked and the money is automatically, the money is automatically fined from their WeChat account. It's never happened to me. I don't jaywalk, uh, <laughs> especially when those cameras are, are there. But uh, it's, I don't think that's going to happen on the streets of San Francisco anytime soon. And so those sort of use cases of sort of surveillance and control enabled technologies, I think there's going to be a divergence in utilization of that sort of tech. When it comes to, to the giants of the US and China's tech scene, I, I don't see any sort of convergence there. The China's developed their own ecosystem. Uh, and no one, even in the U.S., knows about these companies. So you've you've probably heard of Alibaba. You've probably heard of Baidu. You've definitely never used Baidu. Mm -hmm. You've probably never used Alibaba. You've probably never heard of Tencent, the parent company of WeChat. And so Chinese tech giants have been very much able to grow within the, the one plus billion person market of China. And they're not even looking to penetrate the US market. They're, they're looking to, to grow in other developing regions. So there's, uh, so obviously India, Southeast Asia, Latin America, these are the principal markets that the tech companies here are looking to expand in. And so the U.S. I don't think was ever really a priority market for the tech companies, and I don't, I don't really see any convergence in U.S. China big tech beyond sort of U.S. tech giants opening research centers in China, in China because there's smart people here, and the, the cost of talent is still multiples lower than in, than in U.S. cities. That's a fascinating insight into the dynamics and I appreciate you going into it. Um, I now want to shift back a little bit to, to your company. Uh, what would you say is the, uh, you gave us a little bit of an idea of the vision and if you tackled, you know, if you tackled uh, aviation, that would be huge, but let's, let's go big for a second. Let's dream, let's go as big as you can think and dream, you know, in two, three, four decades, what would be if your company gets as big as it could possibly get? What would it, what would it look like? What would it do? What would how what would change because of it? Uh, you know, let's um, dream for a second. So, if our technology got sufficiently cheap, and so so right now it, it's the cost is based on a, on a price per ton of carbon. And so currently, the, the most advanced companies in this field are, are extracting CO2 at a cost of around two, three, four hundred ton, dollars per ton. And so hypothetically, if this technology got to, to a cost of $10 per ton, and so carbon credits are trading in California today at around $30, $40 per ton. In, 
the EU is around 20 to 30 euros per ton. And so if our technology got cheaper than those carbon credits are currently trading at, this, this industry could become that on the scale of the autom automotive sector. And we would be churning out modular size units of these machines to put them pretty much anywhere. So maybe every house could have one in their back garden and power their, their electricity in their house from this technology, hypothetically speaking. So you could have a device and you could have a machine, a modular size machine in, in every home in the world, hypothetically speaking. And we could decarbonize pretty much not every industry, but we could eliminate we we don't just have to stop at carbon neutrality, we will go to negative emissions. And so if this technology got sufficiently cheap that it was say cheaper than planting trees, we would have negative emissions on the order of magnitude of however fast we could churn out these machines. And so so hypothetically speaking, if the technology was cheap enough, the sort of world is would be our oyster. But there's still a long way to go. Well, that is a fantastic vision that you're painting, and I would like to see it happen. And you know, in order in order for it to happen, right, you're gonna need some help along the way. Uh, and uh, it kind of leads me to my last question for the podcast. Um, you got tons of people listening that probably really align with what you're working on. They're probably fascinated and they probably want to help. So I'm wondering, do you have an ask for the forward thinking founders community or something that you need or help with that someone listening might be able to assist with? I guess, how can we help? So I mean, at, at this point, I would just like people to become more aware of the broader consequences of their day-to-day -day behavior. So yes, using a paper straw rather than a plastic straw is better for the world, but can you be more ambitious with your, your lifestyle choices? Can you walk somewhere instead of getting a, an Uber or a Lyft? Can you um, take a train instead of flying? Yes, in lots of places in the world it's not very practical, but these sort of lifestyle changes will be necessary on an aggregate basis to, to move the needle. And so directly for our company, we're, we, look, we are raising money now. And so if you are a final year chemical engineering or sort of industrial design graduate looking for a high impact, high potential, high risk company to work for uh, after you graduate from your undergrad or graduate program this summer, then any sort of talent will, will be very welcome with us. But yeah, I, I think on the whole, I want people to, to be more ambitious with the way they're looking to, to solve problems. And to think more about their legacy. 
Like I, I've done a lot of thinking in the last year or so about how I'd like people to remember me when, I, when I'm gone and provided that the world is still here. But a lot of young people today aren't thinking big enough. Like, yes, should I make the next TikTok? Great, I'll make a billion dollars, but, but then what? And so my, my ask is not just for, for talent to, to come work with us, but also for, for people out there to start thinking bigger and more long-term. All right. I, I love that ask. And I think everyone listening can, can help by, by thinking bigger and more long-term as you ask. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Honestly, very fascinating stuff, ranging from technology behind removing CO2 and recirculating it to all the way to China. So appreciate you coming on and sharing all this insight with us. Best of luck with everything moving forward. Thanks for having me, Matt. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening, everyone. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did enjoy it, and you have enjoyed previous episodes, and you by chance would want to meet a good amount of the guests I've had on the podcast, then you should come to the Forward Thinking Founders Meetup. If you listened to the beginning of this episode, you know how to attend, how to get the information. But if you forgot, all you have to do is become an angel investor in the podcast for $10 a month or for $100 a year. You get access to all our in-person events and online communities and premium content. It's a hell of a deal. And let me be honest, it really supports me as a creator. So if you're interested in meeting some of the guests and me, your host, at this meetup in San Francisco late January, go to glow.fm slash F20R. And let's make it happen. Hope you have a great rest of your day and I will see you tomorrow. Peace.